How cool is that? God, yeah, you hear them cheering back there? They're going crazy. Uh, oh, so much. Uh, we're we're going to talk about baptism a little bit a little bit later as well. I, before I get going, I just want to say 43 years ago this Friday, uh, the Supreme Court made the Roe v. Wade decision. I just want to mark that, and I want to take some time to pray. Chris mentioned at the beginning of the service that we have a ministry to post a board of women, um, and, and we recognize that, you know, in, in the last 43 years, a whole lot of stuff has happened, a whole lot of, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of hurt. And I just want to pray that we, as a church, might reach out, might be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's, let's do that. God, thank you um, for the way that you work. And God, there are things that we don't understand, that we don't desire. Um, Lord, we ask that somehow um, the, the death of those unborn babies might stop. Um, we know that you can do incredible things. And, and God, we just ask that you would intervene somehow. Um, God... In the meantime, help us be a church um, that reaches out, that shows love. God, help us, help us be a place that cares for kids in bad situations, that, that, uh, a church full of people that do foster care, a church full of people that adopt, a uh, church full of people that, that minister to hurting women, hurting families, and... Um, God, we, we just place ourselves in your hands and ask you to, to lead us and guide us, show us what you'd have us do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, when you think about <clears throat> when, you think about when your kids were little, at my age, my, most of my kids are grown, and I think back to the time that my kids were little, and, and you have those pictures in your mind, those interactions that took place that you think, oh, that was, that was a great interaction. I remember one, one conversation I had with uh, our daughters when they were really young. They were probably, uh, probably six, four, and two, our three oldest daughters. And we had some friends over, and the, the kids came, and they played together, and they're talking back and forth. They go home, and our daughter, our second daughter, Annie, said to me, Dad, those were bad kids. And I said, oh, oh really? And she said, she said, yeah, I don't know that we should have them back to our house again. And I said, how come? And Annie said, they used bad language. And I said, really? What'd they say? And she said, Dad, they said the S word. And I said, okay, tell me more. Um, and uh, and she, she, said, she said, Dad, you know, they said the S word. And I said, well, Annie, there are a lot of S words. <laughs> what S word did they say? And she said, she said, Dad, she said, stupid. And I said, Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, my, my heart is just going, wow, that's, that's a relief. We didn't have to go in a direction that we weren't planning. Anyway, but that's not the S word that we're talking about in this series, okay? We start a new series of messages, five weeks, that we're talking about the S word, but it's not stupid. Um, you know, the hardest thing to preach, the hardest messages to preach are, are messages that we don't really want to hear that are counterculture, right? The easiest messages to preach are, are it's to preach about the love of God. We all want to experience the love of God. We all want to hear about the grace of God that it goes on and on and on, and it does. We want to hear about his mercy that extends to generation and generation and generation. 
But we don't like it when we hear messages. It's hard to preach messages that confront us where we live, that call us to obey, that contradict our value system or our perspective. This series, the next five weeks, is one of those series because the S word is submission. Submission is a hard word in our culture. It's a, it's a bad word. It's a four-letter word. It stands in opposition to everything that we embrace as Americans. We resist authority. That's part of our DNA. When the government says, do this, we say, I don't want to do that. When our parents say when we're young, oh, do this, you need to do that, we say, I don't want to do that. We believe that we are our own king, that we know what's best for us. How can anybody who lives in Washington, D.C., how can anybody who lives in a body that's 30 or 40 years older than us, how can a teacher in school know what's best for me? I know what's best for me. That's the American way, right? Rugged individualism. We do think that we know what's best for us as a culture. We think that it's better to be able to be sexually active outside of marriage than it is to be celibate. We think that it's better to lie to, to make ourselves look good rather than to tell the truth and look bad. We think that it's better to cheat on our taxes because the government's bloated and, and wastes money and, it, and, it's, and the tax code's unfair. We think that it's better to express ourselves rather than to exhibit self-control. We think that it's better to hold a grudge or to get revenge rather than to forgive. We think that we know what's best for us. If you ask us, we'd say, you know what? Yeah, I'm willing to submit. But I want to choose when and how I submit, right? We want it to be on our terms. And that's not submission. Over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about submission in the context of several different kinds of relationships. I'm not going to tell you what those relationships are in advance because if I do, most likely one or more of those weeks you'll say, Meh, I don't want to hear that message. I'm going to stay home. So just trust me in this. The next five weeks are really important for you spiritually because God calls us to submit. To submit means to, be, to place oneself under another. It's a military term that's used in a lot of different contexts. If you think about it, it makes sense to us in, in, a, in a military world. A private submits to a sergeant. A sergeant submits to a, to a lieutenant. Lieutenant submits to a major. Major submits to a colonel. Colonel submits to a general. That all makes sense to us, right? If you're a, if you're a fan of, of the UFC... You hear the word submission because there are submission holds in UFC. Sometimes they just beat each other senseless, right? But sometimes they'll grab a wrist or an arm or a shoulder or a leg and twist it and turn it. And in just a matter of seconds, without any punches at all, the guy's tapping out because he has to submit to the will of the other person. While it may be used in the octagon as, as forcing someone to submit to your will, that's not really the, the heart of, of the meaning of the word. Submit more accurately describes the person who says, I trust you. I trust your leadership. I trust your judgment. 
I trust the structure that God has put in, that God has put in place. And I choose to follow you even if I think I have a better plan. That rugged individualism that we prize so much as Americans, that we hold so dearly, that independence that says no one has the right to tell me what to do, that starts early in our lives. As children, we think that we should be able to determine what we eat and when, right? I don't want to eat vegetables. That's, those are terrible. We, we think as kids that we should be able to determine when we go to bed, what we watch on TV, How do you think that it would work for a child to raise themselves? How do you think that it would work for a new hire in your business to set their own goals, their own agenda, their own hours? How would it look in a war for for every soldier to attack as they determined, um, at whatever point they determined, in whatever timing that they determined? Rugged individualism is not what it means to follow Jesus. Submission placing ourselves under God and under those he calls us to submit to, that's a defining moment for us for whether or not we're serious about following Jesus. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we think is best. It's about trusting God, trusting the one who made us. He's the one who really knows what's best for us. Submission is fundamental to the lordship of Jesus. When we talk about being followers of Jesus, we're talking about very specifically, we're talking very specifically about submitting our lives, lock, stock, and barrel, completely to God. Our wills, our desires, our actions to Him. We see that clearly in the life of Jesus. If you think about the life of Jesus, you know, we've just come out of Christmas. We read the Christmas story about the birth of Jesus. Right after that, there's the passage of Scripture that talks about Jesus going with Mary and Joseph to Jerusalem when he's 12. And then we don't hear anything at all until he turns 30. And when he turns 30, we read this in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and come to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The baptism of Jesus was completely an act of submission to the Father. Did Jesus need to be baptized? No, he was perfect. He had not sinned. Why did he do so? Was it just to be an example for us? I don't think so. Jesus said it was to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus submitted to God to honor him. Can can I just kind of jump off Travis baptism and encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've made a commitment to to give your life to Jesus and you've never taken the step of Christian baptism, let me encourage you to do that. Because that act of submission, God works in in an incredible way. 
When, when, when we listen to God, when we follow him into the waters, God does this transforming work in us as we're made alive in Christ. Something life-changing happens when we submit in that way. There's a picture there uh, in Scripture of the death, burial, and resurrection. If you've not taken that step, man, you're missing something incredible. And for most people, the reason they've not taken that step is because they think, eh, you know, I don't know that I really need to do that. It's all about submission. If Jesus was willing to submit, and, and picture again at the end of Jesus' life, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, recognizing that in the next few hours he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, and he's going to die. Jesus said, God, isn't there any other way you can do this? But not my will but yours. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, submitted completely to God. If Jesus was willing to, we need to as well. For the next five weeks, we're going to talk about submission in the context of different kinds of relationships. Today, I want us to focus on submission within the body of Christ. I want us to look at a very specific passage, and we're going to kind of jump off that and develop that. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I want you to just hold on to that, keep going back to that. You're going to have an opportunity to take a bunch of notes this morning. Um, let me, let's look at that. Hebrews 13 says this, Obey your leaders, your spiritual leaders, and submit to them. For those leaders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this. Let those leaders do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Scripture's teaching for us is plain that we need to submit to the spiritual leaders within the body of Christ that he's placed there. That's, that's, a, that's a critical thing for us. Before we develop that further, let me just really quickly look at several different kinds of relationships in the church because the first one is, is fundamental for us to understand. Understand that in the body of Christ, we're all uh, equal. That, that there is no uh, slave nor free, man or woman. That, that we're, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Um, in in uh, First Peter Peter talks about this concept that we're the royal priesthood of the body of Christ. That we don't need anyone in between us. We don't need someone to hear our confessional prayers. We don't need someone to go to bat for us with God. It cracks me up sometimes when people say, oh, you talk to God. God doesn't listen to me. You know what? He listens to all of us. And that there's nothing, there, there is no person, no, um, no, no minister, no priest, no that we need to have a relationship with God. Uh, Peter says this, 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And understand when he said a royal priesthood in the context of a Jewish audience, they, got a, they had a clear picture of what that looked like. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just a few verses before that, he says, there's one God... There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
this concept as we talk about leadership in the church is fundamental. And it's, it's this, at the foot of the cross, the ground's level, we all stand accountable to God and that we are the priesthood of the new nation of Israel. We're the priesthood of the church in the world in which we live. Um, a couple of other things. The 12 disciples that Jesus called to himself in the New Testament, as you read through it, um, after Jesus resurrected, they began to be called apostles. The word apostle means one sent forth or one sent out. It's kind of like a missionary kind of deal. Apost- the, when you read about the apostles in the New Testament, um, you're talking about, we're, we're talking about the 12, about the disciples that Jesus had trained and had spent three years with him and, and uh, Paul as well. Um, in Acts chapter 6, the church is growing, it's going crazy. And, and there's this fussing and fighting that takes place. There are, there are widows in the church that need care and concern. And, um, and they're, they're fussing between uh, themselves. And in Acts chapter 6, the 12, the disciples, now called apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles said, you know what? God's called us to do this ministry. We shouldn't be worrying about all the physical stuff. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, and will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. That's Acts chapter 6. Those, those guys, those seven, were called deacons. If, when you hear the word deacon in Scripture, the, the original language means servant. There are guys who took care of physical needs. So when you read later through the New Testament about the elders and deacons, the deacons were the guys who ministered to the physical needs of the flock, the physical needs of the church. And then there were elders. Uh, uh, in, uh, Paul writes to Titus and he, and he says, um, I left you in Crete so that you might uh, put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, Paul said, there's this function that happens in the church that every church needs. It's elders. We talk about elders praying for people here at North Point. James chapter 5 is where that comes from. It says this, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Prayer is one of the functions of the elders, but what I, want you, what I want you to understand is that the elders were the spiritual leaders that are there. Last category I just want you to see in Scripture comes uh, from 1 Timothy 5. It says this, Let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That double honor phrase, what that means is that these were guys who were elders in the church that the church supported. They were paid ministry people. That, that They were there. There were elders that shepherded the flock, but they had the benefit of not having to work at another job. That's the foundation. That's the, the philosophical foundation that we have for having paid ministers in the church, people like me and Chris, that, that, that teach and preach. And you all allow us to do that by paying our salary. Understand this. There is no... There is no um, separation between clergy and laity in the New Testament. There's not this special category of, oh, those are the paid ministers, and, and they're really special and holy, and everybody else, oh, they're just kind of second class. There's not that at all. We're all in this together, but God has created different roles and functions that we need to pay attention to. Because there is no difference between the church and the paid ministry staff, 
understand this. You are critical to the body of Christ. The ministry that God has called you to is a dynamic part of, of Jesus' presence in the world today. You can't sit on the sideline. You can't be a fan in the stands. You can't wait to see what others are going to do. God has called you to show the world Jesus. He's called you to be engaged in the body of Christ. He's called you to actively serve him. So what is it that the, that the role of the elders have? Let's just look real quickly. Jump to Acts 20. Um, Paul is, is uh, talking to the elders that exist in the church in Ephesus, the town of Ephesus, and he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers is another term that's used to describe the elders of the church. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. What's the function of the elders? It's to care for the church of God. In 1 Peter 5, he says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. There are three words in the New Testament that describe the the role and function, the position of the elders in the church. The first word is the word episkopos. It's a Greek word. Episkopos, it means overseer, manager, manager. it's, sometimes it's translated bishop, but it's not bishop in the sense that we think of in the Catholic Church. It's, it's, it's guys who, from a spiritual standpoint, are helping provide management and oversight to what's going on in the local body. There's another word that's the word presbyteros. Presbyteros, that's a fun word to say, isn't it? Presbyteros. Um, that, that describes the older men in the congregation that God has gifted and given wisdom to. That picture comes out of the, the Jewish culture where everybody's living in little towns and when the old guys, um, when they got old and they were wise, they would come to the gates of the city and when people had a problem, when they had a dispute, when they had a question, they would go to the gates of the city and talk to to the presbyteros to get their input. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if you ever see this or not. When, when I was growing up, there was a little restaurant in West Milton, Ohio called Jack's. Um, Jack's was a mom and pop place. If you would go there on Friday morning, 52 weeks of the year, there was a group of six or eight or 10 guys that were retired, drinking their coffee, eating their, you know, eating their breakfast, and they were the guys of the town of West Milton. People would just happen to come and be in Jack's so that they could ask questions of these guys about how the city worked, what was going on, what the plans were. That's, that's this concept of presbyteros, but in the context of the church, it's not, it's not earthly knowledge, it's spiritual knowledge, spiritual oversight that these guys provide. The last word is the word poimen. Um, and, and what it means is to shepherd or to pastor. We use the terminology for ministry staff as pastors. In reality, that word, pastor, is the exact same word as shepherd. And it describes the function of the spiritual leaders of the church. They're to shepherd the flock. They're to pastor 
the flock. They're to, they're to provide, provide oversight, input, direction for the church. What is it that a shepherd does? If you think about it, shepherd really does four different things. He leads the sheep. He helps feed the sheep. He looks for the needs of the sheep. He's all the time attuned to the needs of the sheep. And he protects the sheep from, from outside dangers. It may be from dangers that exist on the earth where the, where the sheep are, that they don't get too close to a cliff and fall off. It may be that he protects them from the wild animals. Those four, those four concepts describe the role of the shepherd, the role of the elders within the church, to lead the church, to feed the church, to look for the needs of the church, and to protect the church um, from any kind of distraction, any kind of danger that might exist. Their responsibility as elders is huge. Last weekend, we weren't here because the elders were on a retreat. All of the elder team here at North Point was together for a weekend. It was, it was an interesting, it was a great weekend, but it's interesting because people always say, oh, when you come back from the retreat, what's the vision that, that, that you got on the retreat? This particular retreat was not at all about vision. It wasn't about managing problems. This last weekend was all about really three things. It was about worship, prayer, and Bible study. It was an incredible thing to be together with the guys and to just spend the entire weekend um, together worshiping God, praying about the body, um, praying about how we can lead well, and studying scripture to try and determine, okay, what is it exactly that God has called us to do? One of the, one of the coolest things about the weekend for me was to, to sit with those guys in this little room and to, and to sing together, to sing and praise together, to recognize that the guys who are the leaders here worship in, in an incredible way. I, I have a benefit because I usually sit down front Every Sunday, every service, I think, it is so cool to hear people sing together. And sometimes I go in the back, and when I go to the back, I, I think, boy, it doesn't look like anybody's singing. Um, here's the challenge for you. Come sit down front. Because when you sit down front, you can hear everybody else singing. You can experience worship in a completely different kind of way that's really cool. One of the things that the elders land on, landed on in terms of trying to be able to describe what God has called us to do to do. They said, you know what? We, we're a team. We're a team of equals with the same goal. That goal is to lead all people into a growing relationship with Jesus, to, to help all people move towards a life fully devoted to Jesus. That's our goal. We're a team pursuing that goal used by the Holy Spirit to lead and shepherd the church. That's the picture of the eldership. Um, in, in order f to be able to understand that, we have to kind of we have to know, okay, who are the guys that are part of the eldership and what qualifies them? Scripture um, gives really two sets of, of uh, big snapshots of what those qualities look like. Um, the verses are going to be on screen. Write them down, and, and let me just take a second and say, if you're in a small group, spend some time this week looking at these qualifications. Um, if you're not in a small group, get the, get the sermon-based questions out at the Connect kiosk on your way out. Take it home so that you can go through these verses, because because they describe something really important in the qualifications of elders. Uh, this, is, um, this is 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saints trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The elders are the spiritual leaders of the church, and those qualifications, they describe what it looks like to be spiritually mature. They've got to be spiritually mature in order to to function as the shepherds and the leaders of the church. The qualifications of an elder describe what it looks like to be spiritually mature. When I have when I have conversations with people and they say, oh, you know, I want to follow Jesus, what's it look like? What does it look like when I've, when I've been following Jesus for a lot of years? Paint me a picture of what that looks like. I point them three places. I point them to Timothy and Titus, to the descriptions that are there of the qualifications of an elder because that describes, that pictures what spiritual maturity looks like. The other place I point them is uh, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. God's Spirit living in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In all of those things, they're not things that we can force fit into our lives. They're, we can't look at that list of qualifications and think, oh man, I've got to be more hospitable. I've got I to gotta do this. I've got to do that, whatever. They're the natural result of what God is doing in us. And the best thing that you can do is to pray and say, God, develop those traits in me. Develop those qualities in me. Because if you're living a life sold out to Jesus, there is no higher goal, no greater aspiration than to lead within the body of Christ. Uh, let me just go back to 1 Peter chapter 5 because I think it, it takes us really where, where we want to land today. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd, when Jesus appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And then to all of us, Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Submit to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I started in Hebrews 13, and I I just want to go back there right now. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What does submitting to the church, to, to the elders, to the church leadership mean? What's that look like? It means that we follow where they lead. It means that we pray for them regularly. 
It means that we, fo- that, that we follow them so that their role is filled with joy. It means that we speak well of them. It means that we trust them because we trust God. We trust His plan for the church. It may be that we don't, that, that we've got questions about an individual guy. It's not that. It's about our trust in God establishing elders here. What are the benefits that come? When we submit to the elders in some way that I'm not sure I fully understand, we, we're protected from Satan. There's this level of covering that comes because the elders are responsible for the spiritual health of the church. When we move outside of that, we put ourselves in great danger. When, when we submit to the elders, we experience the direction that they receive from God, that we, we benefit from the counsel, from the wisdom, from the encouragement that they may have for us. They, we benefit from, from their willingness to help us as we go through difficult decisions. We benefit from their protection in terms of biblical teaching that I don't stray, that Chris doesn't stray, that any speaker that we come in doesn't stray, in our small groups that they don't stray from what the Bible teaches as truth. All of those benefits happen. So let me, let me just land here. Who are our elders? Uh, take a look up on screen. Because it may be that you know these guys and it may be that you don't. And if you guys are in here, if your picture's up there, if you'd stand for a second. Jason Beebe. Uh, Jason's right here. Chris was here at the beginning of the service. Uh, Jeff Kimmy is, are you in back? Yeah, he's back in the shadows back there. Uh, Jeff Rouse right over here. Uh, myself, John Seeger over here. Dan Tace was in first service. Um, I'll, I'll speak for all these guys. Thank you. Thanks. Um, pray for us. Pray for us because um, Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the leadership, unity in the leadership. Um, he, he wants nothing more than to distract us. Um, we closed our retreat last weekend with the Lord's Supper. It was an incredibly cool thing because one of the guys read from the Gospels about the Last Supper and he read about Jesus washing the feet of the, of the disciples We talked a lot about what servant leadership looks like. And we shared together in the Lord's Supper. And one of the guys went around and washed each of our feet. Incredible picture. Incredible experience for us. Here's what I want you to know as we close. You have elders here at North Point that love Jesus. They love the body of Christ universal. But they love North Point. You have elders that take seriously their responsibilities as shepherds. They care about your spiritual health. You have elders that are passionate about following Jesus. And you have elders that are serving humbly. Here's the challenge for us as a body. Follow them. Follow the elders. Submit to them. Speak well of them. Pray for them. Make their job easy by fully submitting to Jesus every moment of every day. We're going we're gonna to just finish together in sharing together in the Lord's Supper. In remembering what Jesus did for us in going to the cross. Let me just share from, from Luke's gospel, his perspective. He, says, he said this, When the hour came, 
Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After he took the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. I tell you, I won't drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body that's given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This morning, as we share in communion, I I want you to think about Jesus' words to his disciples when he said, I've eagerly desired to share this with you. This concept that Jesus waits um, with anticipation for us to share in this time with him. And the recognition that there's going to come a time that we share together around the throne of God and see him face to face. That that we see the nail prints. We see the scars in his feet, the scars in his side. The price that Jesus paid for our salvation was incredible more than we can understand at all. Experience his love as we share together in the Lord's Supper this morning.